Okay, so before we begin, I would just like to state for the record that today is May 4th, 2022, and my name is Ben Bauman. I'm speaking via phone with James Monk, who is in Springfield, Illinois, and we are doing an interview for the Indiana Legislative Oral History Initiative. So just starting off, when and where were you born? Uh, I was born October 5th, 1947 in Sullivan, Indiana. What were your parents' names? My father's name was Lyman Monk. Okay. My mother's name, mother's name was Charlotte uh, Monk, and her maiden name was Ellingsworth. Okay. And uh, when did your family first move to Indiana? Uh, well, my, uh, both, my fam- both sides of my family were uh, from Indiana for quite some time, so that's probably back, uh, back maybe... Uh, decades before I was before I was born sure okay and uh, what were your parents occupations uh, my father uh, my father was a foreman at a gravel pit and my mother was a registered nurse did you uh, have any siblings growing up I did I have two sisters okay. younger. and uh, how would you describe your childhood overall well, I was, uh, as I told you, I was born in Sullivan, Indiana, which is the county seat of Sullivan County. It's a town of about 5,000 people. But I actually uh, lived in, was raised in a little town uh, about eight miles west of there called Graysville. Okay. Which was about 100 people. Wow. And so, you know, it was just very, I lived in the, in the little town. Uh, I didn't live on a farm or anything, but it was, it was a very uh, small town, typical small town existence and, and uh, so I, I lived there in uh, that house in Graysville, Indiana until I uh, left uh, to get married actually. Yeah, wow, okay, interesting. And who would you say were the most influential people in your childhood? Well, my parents obviously, but uh, I had the, some teachers, uh, especially one teacher that I have always thought of as my favorite teacher and most influential, and that was my first grade teacher, Julia Burnett. Oh. She, was also, she, by, she was also my dad's teacher when he was in grade school. Oh, okay. She, she was in, in Graysville, there was a, a, actually when I was growing up, first there was actually a high school, junior high and elementary, all in one building in a little, uh, in the little town, and then uh, between my eighth grade year and my freshman year of high school, they closed the high school and consolidated it with Sullivan. So I went to high school in Sullivan, but I went to grade school and, and junior high in Graysville. Wow, okay. Interesting. Um, now, what did you know about your family's political views when you were growing up? My, my uh, parents weren't very political. I mean, my dad, we talked... Uh, all, all of us talked about, you know, current affairs and things like that. Um, my dad, my dad and mom were both Democrats, but typical Southern Indiana, relatively conservative Democrats. Yeah, and uh, not over, not overly political. Um, my dad once, I think, my dad ran for school the local school board once and lost by one vote i, I think that was all the politics he wanted okay <laughs> now i did have a my mother's father 
was really probably the most influential person for me in terms of politics. Right. He was he was very active. He was um, at first that he was living in Kentucky, but when he retired and moved moved into Sullivan, uh, he he uh, was very active in politics. I think he was a precinct committeeman, and I used to go when I was a younger when I was younger. I used to go with him to political events like, you know, fundraisers and stuff like that. So that's really where I really got more interested in politics than my parents had ever been was through my grandfather. Sure. Okay. So what schools did you attend growing up? Well, I went to high school, as I said, I went to high school and graduated from Sullivan High School. Yeah. Okay. I went to the elementary school and, and, uh, junior high were Graysville uh, schools. Um, and then I went to college uh, after graduating from Sullivan High School. I went, I lived at home and went my first year to Indiana State University in Terre Haute. Oh, okay. Commuted to, from Graysville to Terre Haute. That's about a half hour drive. Wow, all right. So I, 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 I went to college at Indiana State my freshman year, but I still lived at home. Yeah. Okay. And then after that first year, uh, I got married, and my wife and I moved to Terre Haute first, and then on to Indianapolis. And so then I went to uh, Indiana University's Indianapolis campus for one year, and then we moved to Bloomington, and I went to, and graduated from IU Bloomington uh, after that. Oh, okay. All right. So you bounced around a bit then. A little bit, yeah. Okay. How would you describe your educational experiences then? Excellent. I mean, they, they set me up for life. I mean, going all the way back to the education I received at, at Graysville in, in that little kind of country school, Sullivan High School was, was a very good school for me. And then my college education, especially at IU, was wonderful. So it really kind of set me up for life. Yeah, Okay. Did you have any uh, favorite subjects in school at all? Or? Yeah, I was I was a, I was a social studies history kind of guy. Okay. And, and so uh, my major in college was history. Oh, really? Okay, that's cool. And uh, were you involved in any like clubs or sports teams at all? Or no, I, by the time I got to uh, my sophomore year, yeah, my sophomore year of college, I was already married. And trying to support my wife and I, so sure. it wasn't fun for those activities. Yeah, I understand. So, how did you view Indiana growing up? Then, all the way up to college and stuff, did you kind of understand like where Indiana's place was in the U.S. in terms of like culture or whatever? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I love Indiana. I loved it. Love it still. Uh, and I, uh, you know, really good. I thought really good understanding having grown up there and been aware of what's what was going on uh, culturally and politically. Yeah, uh, had a pretty good understanding of it, and then uh, you know, and I was very comfortable uh, living in Indiana. Uh, but uh, I didn't. After I graduated from college, I moved to Florida. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Well, I I, I was uh, I got a degree from IU, and and included in that was a teaching uh, certification. Yeah. So that was that had always been my goal was to be a teacher. Oh, okay, sure. So I 
got it. But at that point in time, there weren't very many teaching jobs available in Indiana. Oh, okay. Uh, so I had a brother-in-law who lived in South Florida in the in the Fort Lauderdale area. Yeah. And so I went down there and did some interviews in that area for a teaching job and got a job teaching in the Fort Lauderdale area. Oh, cool. Okay. Uh, my wife and I then moved from Bloomington after graduation. We moved from Bloomington to South Florida and lived there for uh, seven years. Wow. Okay. Interesting. And um, thinking about to your college experiences again, real quick, did your awareness of politics change much in college? Or uh, yeah, I would say I was already very aware of politics. Uh, you know, I had been kind of yeah. a political. Uh, the bug kind of bit me pretty young through my grandfather. Oh, okay, uh, sure. I got to college. It was right in the middle of the, the whole Vietnam War situation. Yeah. And that, you know, Indiana at uh, Bloomington was a real hotbed of activity in terms of anti-war. Sure. Movement. So, yeah, I, I became, my, I'd say my awareness was very much heightened. And then, in really, the where I really kind of shifted gears politically and really got into serious politics was in 1968, uh, when Lyndon Johnson decided not to run for re-election, and Bobby Kennedy came to Indiana to run in the Indiana primary. I was all in. I got all in for Bobby Kennedy. I walked precincts. I, uh, you know, did all kinds of stuff in that campaign, and actually wound up uh, working a precinct in Smithville on election day. Uh, oh, okay. In that primary. So that was where I really went from having an interest in politics to being very actively involved in politics. Right. And that, that, you know, that was when I was 21, and I've, you know, been at it now for well over 50 years. <laughs> wow, yeah, that's interesting. Um, now, do you have any children? Yes, I have, uh, I have two children, uh, actually I had three, one, uh, one child died in two months, but I have two children, uh, one is actually now living back in South Florida, he's uh, a foreign language teacher and, and assistant administrator at a private academy in Miami. Oh, okay, interesting. And my other my other son lives here in Springfield, uh, and he is uh, uh, works for uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield. Oh, okay, so, sure. Yeah, cool. And then I have well, I'll get get to that later. But I have two stepchildren also uh, from a from a second marriage. Ah, uh, uh, okay. My first wife passed away uh, from breast cancer, and then I remarried later, remarried, and I have two stepchildren from that marriage. Okay, sure. My daughter, my our daughter, my stepdaughter lives in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico. Wow. And, yeah, and my uh, stepson lives here in Springfield. Interesting, okay. Now... Um, thinking about when you started to get involved in politics, uh, what kind of shaped your political outlook? Well, I think, uh, as I said, my grandfather being a Democrat, essentially what I, what I call a Southern Indiana Democrat, yeah. that, that really was the beginning of my, to shape my okay. political philosophy. And then, then my experience in the Bobby Kennedy campaign, 
and you know my own uh, personal experience later on uh, I think those are the things that really began that really shaped my political philosophy uh, through the years yeah okay that makes sense um, so when did you decide to run for the Indiana General Assembly well I, I like I say I was in Florida teaching high school right social history, government, leadership, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but I uh, I was also holding down two or three part-time jobs all the time because back then and probably even still today, you couldn't really make a living and support a family very well on a teacher's salary. Okay. Uh, so I decided that uh, I love teaching. I'd still be teaching today if I could have, if I could have made a living at it. Yeah. But I decided I needed to do something else to, to, you know, move forward with my life in terms of financial stability. So I decided to go to law school. Okay. So I went to law school at night while I was teaching. Ah, uh, okay, sure. And, and working other jobs. Wow. Busy. <laughs> it was a very busy time. Yeah. Jeez. So I went to law school. In, I lived, uh, taught and lived in the Fort Lauderdale area. So I went to law school. Uh, the University of Miami and Coral Gables had a, had a night law school program. And so I got into that program and went to law school there uh, for three years while I was teaching. I, I teach and then I drive to Miami at night, uh, three or four nights a week to go to school. Yeah. And but the problem arose uh, that the, a new dean came into the a new dean of the law school came in and changed the changed essentially the policy that. You couldn't graduate just going to law school at night. You wow. had to do it one year of, of day, uh, full-time day studies. And I couldn't do that. In Miami, I was hard enough doing what I was doing. Uh, but I would have to do that. I would have to quit my teaching job. Yeah. And so I, that was not going to work. So I was, I was two-thirds of the way through law school but I wasn't going to be able to finish at Miami, so what I decided to do was to leave teaching, move to Gainesville, Florida, and finish my law school at the University of Florida in Gainesville. So that's what I did. Okay. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, and then uh, while I was at Gainesville, uh, we decided we wanted to eventually move back to Indiana. So as soon as, uh, in fact, almost... <laughs> The, the day I graduated from law school in the morning, we started at home, we're going back home to Indiana in the afternoon, and so that's what I did. I, I had already flown to Indiana and taken the Indiana bar and passed it, so I was already all set up to practice law in Indiana. So we moved back to Sullivan, our, our little hometown there, and uh, I set up a law practice there. Oh, okay. Sure. Okay, so I'm, I'm, stay with me. I'm getting there. Yeah, no, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, I set up I set up a law practice uh, in with a, a fellow. It wasn't a partnership or anything, but it was I practiced law in the same office as an established lawyer there in town. And uh, one of the things that was kind of going on at the time was people were a little upset at the local county prosecutor. They didn't think he was really doing the job that they wanted him to do. Right. So uh, my guy that I was working with and I talked, and he said, why don't you run for prosecutor? Not only, even if you don't win the election, 
it'll help you get known better, although you're pretty well known already. It'll help you get known better, and it'll give you some good publicity. So I decided to do that. So I, I uh, filed petitions and announced to run for prosecutor against the incumbent. Prosecutor, who actually I had gone to school with and was kind of a friend of mine in the school days, but never really a close friend. But anyway, so I ran for prosecutor. Uh, I, I mean, in Sullivan County at that time, probably not now, but in Sullivan County at that time, the election was the Democratic primary. I mean, there weren't very many Republicans in Sullivan County at that time. Yeah. So I, I challenged him in the Democratic primary and beat him. Interesting. Upset the upset the incumbent prosecutor, and got the Democratic nomination. Didn't even have an opponent in the fall. Uh, so wow. that's how I got elected prosecutor. This was in 1978. Uh, I think the election was less than a year after I had moved back to to Indiana. <laughs> the November <laughs> election was less than a year after I moved back to Indiana in December of the year before. So anyway, there I was, elected prosecutor. Wow, okay. So I, I served as county prosecutor for four years. Uh, but I, I liked the job. It was not, you know, prosecuting is not everybody's cup of tea, but I liked it. I didn't love it, but I liked it. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, what was going on at the state level was re redistricting. That would have been the redistricting from the 1980 census. And when they, when they drew the boundaries, the legislative boundaries for the, from that redistricting process, they created a district that I thought was just perfect for me, a Senate district that I thought was just perfect for me because the district, the 39th district, ran from downtown Terre Haute all the way to Aspen almost to Princeton, just right down the side of the state. Okay. And right in the middle of that district geographically was Salt, where I was at. Yeah. So uh, I talked to a lot of the folks that I you know knew politically. Uh, I knew a few people at the state level, not many, but I talked to them. But I talked mainly to the local folks that I knew in Sullivan County, and also I knew some people by that time in Knox County, where Vincennes is, and they encouraged me to to go for it. Uh, the problem was there was an incumbent state senator who lived in actually south of Vincennes. He was in the new district. He would have been at the far south of that new district. Uh, so, but he uh, was talking about running for election, running for re-election in this new district that I was talking that I was thinking about. Well, he decided eventually. I think was persuaded. I think eventually to run. For the House of Representatives instead, yeah, and he, he did. He ran for the House, got elected. But anyway, that left the that left the the Democratic primary in that new district was just me. So I got that nomination. There was a Republican candidate uh, uh, from Vincennes, but I beat him in the general election pretty handily. Uh, so that anyway, that's how I got elected to the Indiana Senate in 1982. Right. Wow, okay. And then I got re-elected in 1986. Yeah, all right. And so, 
What would you say was like your main campaign strategy then? Well, my main campaign strategy was campaign strategy uh, was simply to to <laughs> in that primary that I where I beat the incumbent prosecutor. Yeah. What I was known for was walking the entire every precinct in the county, and that was you know it was a it was a May primary, so most of that walking was done in the in the late winter, early spring, yeah. including a couple of big snowstorms. <laughs> and I, even after even after several years, when I was running for re-election in 1986, I still had people tell me, "I remember you. You ran for prosecutor. You came out and there was 14 inches of snow, and you were out walking in that snow campaigning." <laughs> so, I mean, it's just a lot. Of, I mean, I I'm kind of old school when it comes to campaigns. Yeah. Uh, no substitute for shoe shoe leather. Sure. And these people, because it'll, it'll help you in that election, and it'll help you down the road too. Yeah. So that was, I guess, the, now, the in, terms of, in terms of what I was trying to accomplish, in, other than getting myself elected, I was trying to to uh, get some new blood into the into the system, uh, representing our area. We're we're a, uh, that area over there is a coal area. It was. Probably not anymore, but it was a coal area. Yeah. And so when I got to the General Assembly to represent that area well, I concentrated on utility issues and stuff like that uh, that had a direct relationship to coal. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, the United Mine Workers were very supportive of my uh, candidacy. And so I, I was, uh, and I had done quite a bit of work, uh, Black Lung work in my law practice representing individual minors so that was one of my main concerns was getting having somebody who had actually uh some knowledge of sort of personal knowledge of and feeling for some of the coal mining uh issues in our district sure okay and so i guess walking door to door is that something you did then for all your campaigns yeah i try i mean the problem <laughs> The problem was I ran uh, six times. I ran counting primaries, general elections. Yeah. I ran for election six times. I only had an opponent twice. Wow. Okay. Yeah. For the first time, and then that first election to the Senate. Every other election, I ran unopposed. So uh, I still got out and went to all kinds of events and walked a little bit. But yeah, yeah definitely in those first in those two elections where I had opponents, walking door to door was really the key, the whole key. Yeah. Did you have any kind of like uh, funny or, or strange experiences walking door to door? Because I imagine you know, whenever uh, someone running for office does that, you could get yeah. all sorts of experiences, which could be unique. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I did. I had, I, there's some stories, but I had this one little town called Paxton, which is south of Terra, uh, south of Sullivan, uh, when I was running for prosecutor, and it was like the snow and all that. Like I said. Uh, I went to. I was going door to door in Paxton, which only took about two hours because it's not a very big place. Right. I was going door to door at Paxton, and I, I go, I go up to this one house, and I start to open the gate to go into the into the yard, and these dogs come at me. I mean, like three <laughs> dogs, and I mean they were they were serious dogs. Uh, so I quickly shut the gate and. and uh, stayed out, stayed outside the gate, away from the dogs, and I waited to see if they would go 
you know, away or calm down or something. They did. <laughs> so I didn't. I said, I'm not going. I'm not going to get chewed up over this one house. Right. I, I went on to the next house and the next house after that, and then on election night, I wound up losing Paxton by three votes. Oh my gosh! And I told I told uh, everybody. I said. Damn, if I had just got into that one house, I might have won tax. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> Gotta risk it, I guess, yeah. <laughs> I guess, I don't know. <laughs> That's pretty wild. Well, if I might have been Republicans, they wouldn't, even, they wouldn't even be voting for my primary anyway. True, yeah, never know, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that's, I, I, I served in the Senate and got elected twice and served seven years uh, in the Senate and then uh, left the Senate to... Uh, be appointed chairman of the Indiana uh, Utility Regulatory Commission that, that regulates utilities. Right. Okay. And what did you think of the election process for the General Assembly and stuff? Did it seem like a pretty uh, efficient process? And Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting contrast with what I found when I got to Illinois. Okay. Uh, because Illinois does redistricting different than Indiana. Okay. Illinois, Illinois redistricts, uh, Senate and House districts are, are like one Senate district is made up of two House districts. Okay. Oh, okay. So 59, uh, there's 118 House districts and 59 Senate districts. So every district is the same. It just has one Senator and two House members. Okay. In Indiana, I mean, when I was in the Senate, I had four House members who who were in my district. Wow. Indiana, Indiana redistricts the Senate districts and the House districts separately. Yeah. It, it's not, it's, it's like in Illinois, it's a very smooth map. Yeah. You always know there's going to be two two House members in every Senate district. In Indiana, it, it's just a, a matter of how it falls. Right. I ran, my district ran all the way from Terre Haute to almost to, to Princeton. And in that, in that four county district, I had four different house members who served in that district. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it, I, I, I thought that was a, uh, I mean, I thought that was a good approach. Right. Uh, I'm sure one's better than the other. It, it was, it did strike me when I got over here and saw this, that it was, uh, uh, so how, different it was in terms of the redistricting process yeah interesting okay and what was your reaction when you found out that uh you won your election for the general assembly oh i was pretty excited <laughs> i was pretty excited i thought it was uh you know it was something i had never in, when i was you know going to school and, and, uh, and teaching and all that it wasn't something that i had ever thought about yeah, uh, I didn't really even think about that until I got elected. First time I got elected to the prosecutor's job, that's when I thought, well, you know, uh, maybe that that would be uh, a next step. And and the prosecutor's job was not easy. All things considered, the t- one of the toughest parts of it was I, you know, a small town county part time county prosecutor because I was part time. In the in the small counties, there are part time prosecutors. Right. So part time, and I still had my law practice too. Uh, but you know, the thing is, when there are when there are crimes committed that are relatively serious crimes, you want to be there in the jail 
doing the interviewing or supervising the interviewing so that nobody messes up because you're the one that's going to have to eventually take that case to trial and try to get conviction. So right. meant, for four years there, it meant a lot of two o'clock or three o'clock in the morning calls to come to the jail. Um, and so that was, that was not a, that was a, a, the, one of the main drawbacks to the prosecutor's job. So I'm not sure uh, I would have run for re-election. I probably would have as prosecutor, but when the Senate opportunity presented itself, that looked like a much better option to me than staying in the prosecutor's office. Yeah, that makes makes sense. <laughs> Sounds like there's a difference yeah. there, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, on your first day in office uh, in the General Assembly, what were you thinking when you first entered the State House for that first day? Well, that was that actually it was kind of an interesting situation. We got a, the election was obviously the first first uh, Tuesday after the first Monday in November, and I got elected and everything was you know celebration and everything. And then about two days later, uh, Governor Bob Ward discovered a four hundred million dollar deficit that he had hadn't discovered before the election. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Okay. Yeah, yeah, they. You know, two days after the election, they decided, oh, we've got a problem. We're going to have to, we're going to have to have the General Assembly come in special session and, and wow. uh, raise raise taxes to make up this four hundred million dollar deficit. So, my first vote. So yeah, they, uh, I got that uh, notice like two days after the election or three days after the election that there was going to be a special special session of the newly elected General Assembly. So. I think it was probably three weeks after the election, I went to Indianapolis for my first uh, time as a state senator, and the very first thing we did was vote on a tax increase <laughs> in that special <laughs> session. And I thought, wow, this is quite a start. Yes, right, yeah. <laughs> so then, you know, then we had the organization day after that, and then we started the regular session. And it was just, it was just really cool. I love the Capitol building. Uh, when my current wife and I got married, uh, my my uh, second wife. We got married in the chapel in the state capitol. Oh wow, that's cool. Yeah, so I, I love that building. It, it's uh, it's a lot smaller than the one over here that I've been working in for yeah thirty years. But it's a really neat building. I really always loved it. Yeah, and uh, it was fun uh, being there. It was fun uh, being in the Senate, and and uh, I had some great friends. Bill McCarty from Anderson and I were seatmates. Yeah. Okay. The whole time I was in the Senate, we were seatmates and uh, good friends, and, and I had other good friends there. Uh, and actually, you know, it, even though, uh, if you'll check the records, <laughs> before I got elected in 1982, in the General Assembly before that, yeah, in the Senate, there were only 15 Democrats out of 50 senators. They didn't even have enough to break a quorum. <laughs> wow. So yeah. when I got elected, we gained three seats, my seat and two other seats. So we got to 18, so we at least could break a quorum. Yeah, jeez. And then during the time I was there, we kept gaining a seat here and a seat there. And the, the last General Assembly I served in, uh, the one that was elected in uh, 1988, uh, uh, I was re-elected in 86, but the General Assembly that got elected in 1988, uh, when Evan Bayh was elected for the first time, 
that General Assembly was 26-24 Republican. Wow. So from 35-15 to 26-24, and that was also the year uh, of the 55th, the first 50th right. House of Representatives. Yeah. So yeah. It got very close. Now, after I left the Senate, it started going the other way. <laughs> and now I think it's back to pretty much where it was before I ever got there. Yeah, yeah. So we're looking very few Democrats. Yeah, true. Uh, what was it like working uh, with House members during a during the fifty fifty session? Well, I, I only did that one one year because right. uh, I I when I when Governor By decided to appoint me to the the utility commission. Yeah, he also wanted me to be sure and stay. He wanted to make that appointment after the general assembly ended because. I was I was carrying I was going to carry some legislation for him, uh, criminal law legislation and stuff like that. Right. He, he wanted me to stay in the Senate until the end of the session, and then he would appoint me officially appoint me to the commission. So that's what happened. So that first year, that first session there in 1989, uh, the first session of the 50/50 House and the 26/24 Senate. Uh, it was really bizarre, uh, as you might expect. Yeah. And, and they didn't know what to do. I mean, there, there was no precedent whatsoever. <laughs> they had no idea what to do over in the House, how to, how to even get to a resolution. So they cobbled together a, uh, a, a really weird uh, arrangement where they would have alternating speakers uh, each day. What uh, the Democrat would be the speaker one day and the Republican would be the speaker the next day. <laughs> and then they had committees were equally uh, numbered and there were co-chairs of every committee. And it was just a really bizarre kind of setup. And it didn't work all that well, but at least it got us through. The, the problem on the, that we had in the Senate was we thought an arrangement like that would probably nothing would get done in the House. Nothing would pass because everybody would be at, at loggerheads over it. Right. Uh, what, they just, <laughs> what they did was they basically passed everything. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I mean we, got, we got a lot more bills passed in the House in that House than we'd ever had passed in the House in my other years there. So we, we had to work kind of overtime in the Senate to handle all that stuff. Jeez, okay. Most of it was, most of it was garbage. Okay. <laughs> So we treated it as garbage, <laughs> but it, that was the uh, but uh, that was the, the one thing most that I remember about that session was how 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 we were just flooded with bills that they passed. They had kind of an under I guess they had must have had a kind of an unspoken understanding of we'll let your bills through if you'll let ours through. Yeah, yeah, I so, guess. But that was that was very interesting. And then uh, like the the day after. That session ended in April, uh, late April. Uh, I resigned from the Senate and was appointed to chair the Utility Commission. Okay. Interesting. Wow. And so, you know, when you first got involved in the General Assembly, you know, did you have particular expectations about the process and how it would work? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm not, I wasn't at that point one of those guys that, you know, 
goes by the chart on how a bill becomes law. I knew I knew that how things work. <laughs> right, right. But uh, it was interesting to see uh, how it was interesting to see the dynamic uh, when you had a long-standing leadership in the Senate. I mean, Bob Garton and Joe Harrison and those guys were there before I got there, and they were there a long time after I left. Yeah. So that, it was interesting to see the dynamic of how that uh, really strong leadership worked and how they dealt with guys like us who were in the minority. Uh, my my uh, experience with them, however, was kind of different than many of my colleagues in the Democratic Caucus. And part of it is because I, I was and, and am a relatively conservative Democrat, right. moderate, moderate Democrat, I would say, to say the least. I was able to kind of work with those guys on things, whereas some of my other more liberal colleagues, especially from Lake County and Marion County, were, would just would refuse to work with them. I was able to work with them on things over the years and gain a good relationship with them, and I think gained their trust, so that I wound up being, uh, me and a couple of other uh, guys from Southern Indiana wound up kind of being um, the Democrats who would work with the Republican leadership to get things actually done. Yeah. And one of the things that's interesting that, I, that they don't have over here in Illinois, they don't have a real important conference committee system over here like they do in Indiana. Okay. And, and I wound up being the Democrat senator on a lot of conference committees on important bills because the Garton and Harrison and those guys knew they could trust me to do what should be done and not play play games with uh, important bills. Right, yeah. Interesting. And so how did you kind of learn uh, the ins and outs of the General Assembly then? Was it just kind of interacting with people regularly? And Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, one of the best things uh, and along those lines was my Senate caucus leader was Frank O'Bannon. Yeah. I, I, he, I love Frank O'Bannon. Uh, he was just a wonderful person and a really good leader. And he, I learned so much from him on how to deal with people, how to, how to work through the process. Uh, just a wonderful, wonderful person. Loved him. Yeah, okay. Sure. And uh, how did you keep track of, like, the needs and wants of your constituents? What was your method for that? It was tough. Uh, well, I, like I said, I, I, when I was a prosecutor, I kept my law office because the prosecuting job was part-time. Uh, so I still had my law office while I was, you know, as a prosecutor, and I just, you know, continued practicing law while I was in the Senate. Sure. Because it's a part-time legislature. So my law office was kind of also my unofficial camp, uh, district office for my Senate district. So I, I had a, had facilities and had, you know, a, a setup there where people could get in touch with me and come see me on constituent matters and stuff like that. So that was helpful. Uh, and then uh, during the session, the one good thing about having four House members in your district, uh, if you get the good crowds for Saturday morning, uh, you know, town hall type things. Right. So we used to do that. Uh, actually, one of my House members was John Gregg. 
from Sanborn, Indiana, who later became Speaker of the House, and almost Governor of Indiana. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, usually every Saturday morning during session, me as the senator and one or two or three of the House members would do town hall type meetings in, in places in our district. Sometimes sometimes an early one, uh, say in Sullivan, and a later one, say in Vincent's or uh, something like that. So every Saturday morning, you know, you'd come home from the General Assembly uh, on Thursday night or Friday night, and then every Saturday morning, you'd get to meet your constituents and listen to them and tell them what's going on and get questions and uh, interact with the other House members and, and that type of thing. So I think that was really, really important uh, part of the whole process to me was uh, providing that kind of instant feedback, basically, uh, to take back to the General Assembly the next week when you went back to Indianapolis. Right. Okay, sure. So we did that. I mean, we tried to do that as many of those as we could uh, because we uh, we all found it really helpful uh, to be able to know the reaction to some of the stuff we were actually doing in Indianapolis uh, in, re- in basically real time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Now, do you remember the first bill that you sponsored or authored in the General Assembly? You know, I, I was trying to think of that, and I, and I don't. Uh, but the thing was, I was, uh, I was, uh, there weren't that many lawyers in my caucus. <laughs> right. There were, only, there were only 18 of us, and there weren't that many lawyers, maybe two or three. So I was, uh, so for O'Bannon, Frank O'Bannon, named me to be the ranking Democrat, the ranking minority member of the Judiciary Committee. And so that was, uh, and then he also, because I was, because I wanted to be involved in uh, coal-related, utility-related issues, he also uh, appointed me to the Commerce Committee and a, a couple of other relatively minor committees. But those were my two main committees, Judiciary and Commerce. And so it's probably... Uh, the, the first bills, first set of bills I introduced were probably introduced along with the chairman of the judiciary, who at that time was Les Duval, uh, who I actually succeeded at the Commerce, at the Utility Commission. He left the Senate to go chair the Utility Commission, and then when Governor Bai came along, he appointed me to replace Les at the commission. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so the I, I would imagine the first bills that I introduced. Uh, were introduced with less and related to uh, criminal law or civil law uh, because of our positions on judiciary. Uh, I do remember uh, I do remember probably the most uh, important vote that I took my entire first year was a vote to establish the funding mechanism for the Hoosier Dome. Oh, okay, yeah. This was early 1983 and uh, we were kind of, the state was kind of building the Hoosier Dome on spec. Okay. <laughs> they, didn't have a, they didn't have tennis, they didn't have a team, nothing. Early in that session, they decided they wanted to, they decided they wanted to go ahead with this project to build the Hoosier Dome, but they didn't have a secure source of funding. Right. So what was proposed, and the bill that passed that I voted for, and I think almost everybody else did too, was a bill to set up the hotel motel tax 
as a funding mechanism to pay for the Hoosier Dome. Okay. And so that that was pretty early. So it must be, it was one of my first it was one of my first big votes uh, in the Senate was to to vote to approve that uh, funding mechanism for the Hoosier Dome. Right. And uh, so it was kind of cool. To, to do that and then watch the Hoosier Dome be built and then watch the, the it all come to fruition when the Colts moved uh, in 1984. Yeah, true, definitely. So, yeah, we, people were getting a little nervous, though, because we, we, as the stadium got further and further along and we still didn't have a, a major tenant, people were getting a little <laughs> nervous about that vote. Yeah, I, bet. I can imagine. But in the end, I, we were all surprised in the end that tax raised enough money to pay off the Hoosier Dome in half the time it was supposed to. Wow. And a part of that's because Indianapolis became a, 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 you know, a big convention and, and area for visitors, and all of, that, all of those visitors paid money into that tax. Yeah, yeah, true, yeah. But we didn't, we, that was in 1983, and Indianapolis... Uh, it was kind of like just beginning to market itself as the sports capital of the country and all that. So <laughs> the tourism wasn't quite up to what it later turned out to be at that point. Right, okay. Now, how easy did you find it, like, when it came to uh, getting a bill passed? Did you often find that you had a pretty good support for your bills, or was it ever challenging? It was challenging, but you had the, and as I told others when they came after me, uh, new legislators, you know, there's just no substitute for working the bill. Yeah. You have to work, you have to work the bill. It's not that, the, you know, you can't go into it thinking, well, this bill is such a good bill, it's going to stand on its own merits. That's just not the way the system works. And it's not just in Indiana. That's, that's the way, that's the nature of the legislative process. You have to work the bill. So that means you have to. You have to go talk to people. You have to get support not only among legislators but among lobbyists. Right. And you know, and then once I I became a lobbyist myself, uh, that that kind of thought process uh, really governed a lot of what I did as a lobbyist, trying to get bills passed. Yeah. Okay. Because sure. there's just no substitute. I, I know there a lot of people would like there to be a substitute, but there's just no substitute for hard work uh, to get to uh, get the bill passed. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And you know, how often did you find that you had to get sort of bipartisan support for your bills? Was that something that you pretty well, much all the time had to do? Being in the minority party the entire time. Yeah. Uh, there was just no no substitute. Few, uh, rarely, rarely could you get a bill passed uh, without at least tacit support of the, the the leadership from the other side. Yeah, makes uh, sense. And that's that's why I worked really hard to try to develop a good relationship with the leadership from the other side, rather than uh, adversarial. Yeah, sure. Yes, yeah, it's an interesting call that was made when I took the job. When I was at the commission in Indiana, and then I took this job, left the commission, took this job in Illinois, moved over to Illinois uh, to, to establish the uh, association of the electric companies over here, yeah. electric and gas companies. So I was like the founding president of that, 
But I did, I knew maybe two legislators in all of Illinois. One's guys who were on the other side of the Wabash River from my district when I was in the legislature. I didn't know I didn't know any of the leadership over here. And so I asked Bob Garten to call the Senate president, his counterpart in Illinois, and uh, kind of introduced me, and he did. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I always was uh, very uh, indebted to Bob for doing that. And Bob and I had a really good relationship. Joe Harrison and I had a good relationship. But, you know, in the end, they were the leaders of the Republican Party over there, and I was a Democratic senator, so there was only so much I could do. <laughs> yeah, right, naturally. Um, but would you say the atmosphere then between the different members of the General Assembly were, was pretty good overall when you served? When I served, I would say it was outstanding compared to what it is today i don't know i don't know anything i don't know much except what i read and what i hear from my counterparts uh in the in the utility industry over in indiana but it's the same thing over here it's it's just and and congress it's just a very toxic atmosphere now compared to what it was when i served i i would absolutely not want to serve uh in a general assembly either in illinois or indiana or in congress under these conditions, it's just, yeah. it's, I mean, the, the, the best part about when I served was the collegiality of the group. I mean, we were partisan, Republican, Democrat, but we all knew that we had a bigger purpose right. than just that, you know. Today, I think that bigger purpose thing has gone out of people's sight. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've heard that a lot now um, at this point. Uh, sounds like that's a common common analysis uh, of today's situation. Yeah, and it's, um, it, and it's a shame because it, it doesn't make things better. It makes things much, much worse. Right, right. For, for our constituents. Yeah. Not just us. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's a pretty, yeah, pretty bad situation in general. Um, yeah. Now, what were the differences between the House and Senate? Well... I mean, that's a that's a loaded question to ask either a house member. Yes, or a yes, it is. Yeah, I'm sure you're. I'm sure you're getting very interesting <laughs> answers about that. Yep. I the house. I had actually thought about running for the house at one point. Okay. I actually, even uh, down when I was, uh, I think I got elected to my second term in the Senate. There were people who wanted me to run for Congress against John Myers. Yeah, and I said no. That uh, first place, John's a friend. I wouldn't want to run against him personally. But in the second place, uh, you couldn't pay me enough money to be a member of the House of Representatives in Washington. Right. <laughs> and I said uh, so. And then the reason for that is the same reason I wouldn't have wanted to be in the House of Indiana. The House is just too chaotic. Okay. And even I'm sure it is now, but it was even more so back then. Uh, it's just, it's just, a, uh, it doesn't seem to be, uh, enough focus <laughs> yeah. among, the, among the members. And that's, that's what I always liked about the Senate. Number one is smaller, which I think helps in that regard. But number two, it seemed like both sides of the aisle over there in the Senate really had m- more focus on what was, what their job was what they were trying to accomplish individually and collectively, much more focused, uh, I thought, than, than I saw when I ventured over to the house and to see my friends over there. 
Yeah, sure. Yeah. There's just, a, just a, generally speaking, a more chaotic atmosphere. <laughs> right, right, okay. <laughs> and and the House members will will probably say the reverse of that, that the, the Senate was boring and sleepy and nothing really exciting ever happened there. I think it's just a different type of mentality that you have yeah. in the different chambers. Sure. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the, I've heard those thoughts echoed, yeah, multiple times now, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, you have—I mean, you have a hundred members over there, and I mean that just multiplies the uh, the uh, chaotic factor. I think. Yeah, probably so. Yeah. What would you say, uh, in terms of uh, influence? How influential was party leadership when it came to getting legislation passed? Very. I mean, first of all, in your own party. You needed the support of your leadership, yeah, especially as a minority member. And then in the overall scheme of things, like I said before, it's, it's, it would be very difficult for a, 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 a minority senator to get a, any kind of a controversial bill passed without the support of the other side leadership. Yeah, the overall leadership, uh, and that's I think one of the things that differentiated the Senate from the House, too. I think I wasn't in the House. I don't know, you know, I don't have any stories about it, but uh, I think it was much easier to kind of be a cowboy in the sen- in the House and get something done on your own because I don't think the leadership was nearly as tight over there as it was in the Senate. Okay. So the Senate, it was pretty much like, uh, you know, you play by their rules, kind of. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely, and, and you know, I don't know how, I don't know how it was when Bob Gardner and Joe Harrison and those guys, Larry Borst and Maury Mills. I don't know how it was when they first got leadership, but by the time I got there, they had been in leadership for eight to ten years, uh, and they they had their game down. They they, they had the the way the Senate ran was very structured. Yeah, and you know they they stayed on for at least I think close to another twenty years after that. Yeah, yeah. I mean they were they were in the control of the Senate for probably almost thirty years. Right. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I guess yeah. It'd be kind of interesting then to expand on that a bit. Like, uh, how would you describe some of the powers that? Uh, Senate leadership or House leadership has, um, whether it's the you know the, the heads of the entire uh, chamber or just like the person in charge of a committee. I think a lot of people probably in the public don't understand like the the complexities of leadership and their role in shaping um, what sort of gets passed or not. I'll, I'll do a comparison with Illinois too because I think it's instructive. Yeah, over here. The committee chairs are appointed by the leadership, but the leadership, the speaker and the president of the Senate, they call the shots in terms of committee, what gets out of committee. Okay. In Indiana, at least then, I don't know about now, but at least then, the leadership appointed the committee chairs, and the committee chairs really had pretty much un. un better to say as to what bills were heard and what bills were voted on. 
so the role of the committee chair over here is not nearly as powerful as it is it was in Indiana. Committee chairs, you know, Maury Mills was chairman of the budget committee for 25, 30 years. And everything <laughs> everything that came out of that committee was something Maury Mills uh, let, let out of the committee. Yeah. There, there was no going over the head of the chairman. Yeah. Uh, it was the and, and same in, same where I was in judiciary, uh, Les Duval, and then later Ed Pease. Uh, I was always the uh, the ranking minority member, but uh, you know the they the, the committee chairs uh, uh, kind of were really powerful. I, I, I used to joke Ed and I were good friends. He's from Terre Haute, or actually Brazil. But Ed Pease and I were good friends uh, and have been uh, for a long time, and. Les Duval left, as I said, to go chair of the Utility Commission, and Ed was appointed by Garden to be chair of the Judiciary Committee. And Ed's a very nice guy, and <laughs> that first session that he was chair of the committee was terrible to be on that committee because he wanted to hear every bill. <laughs> and I said, Ed, you know, I know you, I know you want to be nice to people and you want to hear their bills. But my God, you're, you know, we would go in, we would have meetings, committee meetings before session, go to session, come back after session and have committee meetings on into the evening yeah. just to hear all the bills. And I said, Ed, you sold your soul to get this job, now use it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> tell, some, tell some of these people you can't hear their bill yeah. because we're spending hours and hours hearing bills that are never going anywhere Yeah, because you're trying to be nice. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the interesting aspect of it because it's... Um, I mean, I guess, so would you say, like, the main reason why, like, a committee chair or party leadership would dictate what uh, bills are heard is to to save time, but also to get rid of bills they, that they feel are just ridiculous, I suppose? Yeah, that's, that's, and that's a, that's a, uh, that's a very effective and efficient way to run a committee process. It puts a lot of power in the hands of a chairman, but for the most part, I didn't have any, maybe a couple of people uh, that I could say were not very up to the task. But for the most part, in the Senate, in, where I was in the Senate, the committee chairs were, were really pretty good chairmen. I mean, okay. I disagree with them on a few things, but uh, they would, uh, for the most part, they didn't abuse the process uh, like like they could have, maybe. Yeah. Did you so? Did you ever witness like bills that you thought that should have been heard in a committee that were not? Oh yeah, sure. Bills, mostly Democrat bills. Yeah. Well, yeah. Naturally, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's that's interesting. I wonder. I mean, do you think there's a, a a way for that process to be improved where you can get you know legislation that should be heard um, heard even if it's coming from the opposite political party? Yeah, I think, I mean, there is, there, there are parliamentary ways to do that, but it all involves votes, and the votes, you know, are going to uh, go the way the leadership wants them to go. Right. I think, you, I think you could build some kind of mechanism in where a committee chair uh, uh, could, the committee chair's decision, it, it's like there, it's like in the parliamentary process where you can vote a bill out of holding, you know, if the bill's being held, you can actually the the whole body if, it, if the whole body can vote for it. Yeah. I mean they can actually vote it out of that holding. 
maybe there needs to be a process like that in some in the committee process, which I don't. Uh, there wasn't when I was there, but yeah. it would have helped a couple of times to get some bills out that uh, that I thought needed to be heard but weren't being heard. But that was relatively rare. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, did you ever go against party leadership? Oh yeah. How'd that go? <laughs> well, uh, it wasn't so much going against party leadership as going against uh, a big chunk of the caucus. Okay. Because a big chunk of my caucus, and and Ed Pease, Ed Pease as a Republican had the same problem with his caucus. A big chunk of my caucus did not uh, was not philosophically, politically on the same wavelength as I was. And I'm talking mainly about the more liberal members from Lake County and Marion County, uh, and and that was uh, you know that was. Those were Democrat strongholds, so those were that was a big, probably more than a majority uh, of uh, our caucus was from those two areas. Yeah. So small, southern Indiana, relatively moderate to conservative guys like me weren't always on the same wavelength as those folks. Right. So that's that's actually was part of the genius I thought of Frank O'Bannon uh, was that. Being a Southern Indiana guy and being a relatively moderate guy uh, as a Democrat, uh, he was able to uh, kind of work around those issues a lot. But there were times when when even he could work work around an issue and tempers would flare in the caucus because uh, either I was going – Myself and a couple of other guys from Southern Indiana, we were going to vote with the Republicans on a bill that the, the liberal Democrats didn't want us to do. There were some there were some moments there when tempers flared a little bit. Yeah, I bet. And Ed had the same problem. Ed Peace had the same problem on the Republican side because he was a pretty, I wouldn't say progressive, but he was a, a moderate Republican. Right. And some of the real more hardline Republicans in his caucus. Uh, we're not happy with some of his votes, and, and it got a little testy in there too. He told me. Okay. So yeah. I told Pease, I said, you know, we should make our own caucus, you and I. <laughs> <laughs> now, how did your legislative service affect your family life? Well, it was it was tough for me because I didn't stay in Indianapolis very often. I uh, I commuted back and forth to Sullivan, which is a hundred. Hundred miles. Wow! Uh, I could, for seven years I commuted back most of the time, unless it was weather or something. I commuted back and forth to Sullivan because then the main reason was not only my family but my law practice. Yeah, I had ongoing law practice, and so I would, you know, uh, if the if the general assembly got out and uh, adjourned at uh, three thirty or four o'clock, I could be home uh, by five thirty, stop by my law office and pick up whatever work I needed to do from, from the law practice, take it home, do it at home, be with my family. Uh, and then the next morning on the way out of town in Indianapolis, I dropped off what I did the night before so that my assistant uh, could work on it uh, during the day while I was in Indianapolis. And so I did that for years. Yeah. Interesting. So it, was, it was tough, but at least I, 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 made up my mind when I ran for the job that I was not going to be 
staying in Indianapolis all week. I was going to be home uh, every night if I could, uh, uh, just because I had small kids and a wife and, and, and the law practice to take care of. Yeah. Okay. So I didn't go to all the parties. Yeah, I guess not. You'd be missing those. I was, those, yeah. I was uh, driving from Greencastle to Terre Haute when they were going on. Yeah. <laughs> now, how influential would you say lobbyists were in the General Assembly? You know, in Indiana, they were influential, uh, but not anything like what I ran into here in Illinois. Oh, okay. I see that. I say that as I think a, a pretty influential lobbyist over here. Oh, okay. When I was, when I was, I'm retired now, but when I was head of the association of all the electric and gas utilities yeah. uh, in the state, uh, you know, I, I was I think a fairly a pretty influential lobbyist. We got some over my 27 years in that job. We got some very major uh, energy legislation passed. Yeah. Um, and so I, I had a, had a hand in that, but. Uh, the lobbyists that I, uh, the lobbyists that I remember most were the ones that were the most helpful. Okay. Like uh, uh, Ed Simcox of the electric utilities, Jim Bittinger of the gas utilities, uh, Dick uh, Dick Good of the uh, Justice uh, uh, Center for Justice uh, on, on criminal law matters, Bobby Small, the same guy. Uh, same thing. Those guys, they were they were influential with me by being helpful, by being informative, by not you know not taking a real hard line and simply trying to convince me. And that's the kind of lobbyist I tried to be. Yeah. Get your get your get your facts in order. Get your get your proposal in order, and go sit down with the legislator and try to persuade them. This is what ought to be done, and that's that's the way I uh, was treated by those guys. And I, frankly, when somebody tried a real hard line, it was counterproductive. Okay. So I guess if if a, a lobbyist came off too strong, you'd kind of get the impression that they were not trustworthy or something. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I have <laughs> it, it. It just gives you a bad a bad vibe when somebody. Uh, it comes on with such a hard line. Yeah, like a salesman uh, or something. Yeah, like a, like a yeah, like a salesman. I don't I don't react all that well to salesman <laughs> like that. <laughs> um, let's see. So, did you do you think that uh, campaign donations or gifts had much influence on politicians when you served? Not in Indiana. Okay. Not when I served. It probably does now. Okay. Uh, it does. It does over here in Illinois. It did right. From the minute I got here, I realized that. Okay. In Illinois, the campaign donations were were a big factor. But but I I mean you know my I didn't personally uh, do much along those lines because I really like I said I only got uh, one time when I was uh, my first election to the Senate. It was the only time I had an opponent and the only time I actually needed any money. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't get, I think, my grand total of spending that campaign was $10,000. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, the, the second time I got elected, I had no opponent in the primary, no opponent in the fall. And I think I spent $100 <laughs> to get elected. Wow. On postage to thank my precinct committeeman. <laughs> wow, yeah. So, but, but you know, the, in the more competitive districts, in the, in the, uh, 
the bigger uh, bigger city districts. Yeah, I'm sure even then uh, campaign uh, contributions were effective, but just nothing in Indiana on the scale of what it is over here or was over here. Interesting. Okay. Um, how influential would you say gerrymandering was when you served? Well, I, yeah, I'd say it's, it's pretty influential. <laughs> how I got yeah. It was. I mean, I didn't. I didn't ask that it be gerrymandered that way. But right. when it was, when, it was uh, when that district was uh, devised uh, with me right in the middle of it, uh, I certainly benefited from it. Okay. I, I, gerrymandering over here is an art. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's absolutely, and, and now it's so highly computerized. I mean, they can they can draw those districts. It, it's amazing what they can do with the computers in drawing districts now. Uh, so it's, it's like everything else over here. It's much more politicized than it ever was in Indiana when I was there. But I haven't been in Indiana politics now for thirty years, so maybe it's changed. Uh, I'm sure it has, but I don't think it's. I don't think there's any way it could change as much as, as it is here in Illinois. Yeah. So do you think that there should be any, any like, changes to uh, mitigate, I guess, partisan gerrymandering at all? Or do you think that the system is okay, just needs to be um, kind of put in the right hands? Or Yeah, I'm not a strong believer in the, in the, uh, the you know, taking it out of the hands of the of the legislators, but right. yeah, I think, I think a lot of it depends. And um, over here, we've had examples, good and bad, of leadership at gerrymandering maps. Uh, so I think it depends a lot on the leadership. And and frankly, I don't, I don't think the leadership in Indiana ever really uh, did anything like I've seen over here in terms of gerrymandering. Okay. It, yeah. There was there was some shaping of districts to be more Republican, Democrat, or et cetera, but not like it is over here. Over here, it's, a, it's, a, it's an industry. Yeah. <laughs> um, so based on your experiences overall in the General Assembly, uh, what would you change about the legislative process? Oh, wow. Uh, you know, I can't... I, Well, I, I think the, the, the legislative, the actual in the chamber type legislative process, I don't know that I have any really serious significant changes there. Okay. Uh, for, the, for the activity, I think you could really maybe tighten it up a little bit as in the committees. Okay. Uh, uh, make the committees a little more efficient, a little more effective. But overall, I, I think the process works. I mean, it's not a beautiful process. It's, it's you know, like we say over here, it's it's making sausage, but yeah, you know, it works. Sure. Uh, let's see. What would you say was the most controversial legislative issue or issues when you served in the General Assembly? Well, the most controversial the whole time I was there, and it wasn't resolved until after I left, was uh, gambling. Okay. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, started out when I first got there. It started out it was the lottery. Uh, Illinois had a lottery that was very successful. Uh, Indiana uh, kept pushing and pushing. Larry Borst, especially, uh, kept pushing and pushing for a lottery. And I think I'm trying to remember if it was 
that bill finally passed after like 18 years. It finally passed, but I think I, I, I wasn't in the General Assembly uh, at, when it did, but I think I may still have been in Indiana. I may still I may have been right toward the end of my uh, time as chair of the Utility Commission when that passed. But it eventually passed, but it took almost 20 years to get the lottery bill passed. And then I left and came over here, and all of a sudden the floodgates opened on gambling in Indiana. Like, yeah. You know, they, they resisted and resisted and resisted, and then the lottery bill passed, and then all of a sudden, there's gambling everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, funny. That was, that was always that was always the most controversial uh, controversial bill, and the whole time I was in there was uh, the lottery. You could tell every year there was an effort made to pass the lottery bill. Every year it failed, but I was there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What was the most complex piece of legislation that you specifically worked on? Well, I was I wasn't a major player in it. Okay. But I I, I, I certainly had input into it, and that was the kind of reworking of the utility uh, regulatory structure in Indiana that happened after Marble Hill. Yeah. Okay. I because that was really in the first few years that I was in the General Assembly. Marble Hill was a, a, a you know, cataclysmic mess uh, that really uh, stained the entire utility industry and utility regulatory process. So the legislature uh, really kind of beginning my first year and for a couple of years thereafter worked on legislation, not just one bill, but a couple of pieces of legislation to restructure the utility regulatory system uh, to make sure that something like Marble Hill didn't happen again. Uh, so it strengthened the hand of the uh, the uh, utility regulatory commission, strengthened the hand of the chairman, which actually you know leads directly to me because I wound up being the chairman. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And cute. Uh, you know, for anyone who might listen to this in the future, can you talk about a little bit about Marble Hill and what happened? Well, Public Service Indiana was the biggest uh, utility in the state, covered two-thirds of the state geographically, and had at least a, a little bit uh, more uh, larger number of customers, I think, than uh, the other utilities, the other investor-owned utilities. They decided they wanted to build a nuclear power plant. This was in the, I mean, the decision was actually made, I think, in the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. They decided they wanted to build a nuclear power plant uh, in southeastern Indiana over, it's called Marble Hill. It's over in the Lawrenceburg area around in there in that corner of the state. And they were going to build a nuclear power plant there. And, uh, you know, at that point in time, uh, they had the cost estimates. Uh, they went to the commission uh, the commission kind of rubber-stamped it uh, without really um, giving it, uh, uh, I, uh, at least the word was, the, the thought was that the commission didn't really exercise a lot of uh, restraint in terms of uh, authorizing the construction of this power plant. Uh, and then, uh, so they started working on the power plant, started building it, we're in the process of building it when Three Mile Island nuclear uh, accident happened in Pennsylvania. And, I mean, that basically 
skyrocketed the cost of building a nuclear power plant uh, going forward because they didn't want in, nobody wanted to build a power plant that would have the problems that Three Mile Island had. Right. So if the plant started out, uh, the cost estimates that were originally approved were a billion dollars to build this plant. The costs they kept getting, they kept going back and getting more approvals from the commission for higher costs and higher costs. You were getting up finally when the when they finally pulled the plug in 1981, 82, uh, the cost had risen to something like four billion dollars, and those costs had been more or less approved without a, without much resistance by the Utility Regulatory Commission. Uh, and that, that's what said about the, the problem uh, that, that the General Assembly thought necessitated restructuring the system to put more, to give the Utility Regulatory Commission more ability to refuse to do stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. So that, that was, and so in the wake of that, was I came to the General Assembly just as that process of restructuring the utility regulatory system uh, was beginning. So right. I was involved in that because, as I said, one of the reasons I went there was to represent my area, the coal area, and coal at that time uh, was the 98% of the electricity generated in Indiana came from coal. So any utility issue, any electric utility issue, was something that I was going to be interested and involved in because of my constituents. Sure. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, let's see, uh, shifting gears a bit to some kind of big picture reflective questions. Um, how would you summarize your time overall as a member of the General Assembly? Well, I tell people, I've told a few, few of my colleagues over here that I love my job over here. I loved it. Did for 27 years. But the best job I ever had, of all the jobs I've had, and I've had a whole list of jobs uh, going all the way back to mowing lawns, working in a hospital as a, as a kid, as, an, as a, uh, a kitchen worker. All the jobs I've had in my entire life, including my one I've just finished at, after 27 years, my legislative job was my favorite. It was the best one I ever had. Yeah, okay. Wow. I loved it. I really did. I loved the whole thing. It was tough. Uh, it was tough because of the commute. It was tough because of, uh, uh, you know, the, the uh, time involved. Uh, but uh, it was still the best. The, the, it gave me the best feeling uh, of any job that I ever had. Yeah. Because you could do so you can do so much to help people uh, if you if you did that job the right way. That's neat. Yeah, it's really cool. Let's see. You know, you served for several years. Uh, do you have any favorite stories from your time as legislator? Uh, I think my favorite story is the <laughs> I told you about the conference committees, right? Yeah. I was I was uh, I think I'm not sure. I, I think it was not my last year, but one one of my later years. Uh, they put me on the conference committee for the budget. Right. I was, and you know how conference committees are set up there. At least they were at that time. You have two senators and two house members. Yep. One from each party. So you have each caucus is represented on the conference committee, and you have to have four votes to uh, sign the conference report 
and the conference report then goes back to the two chambers to be approved. So uh, they put me on the budget committee, uh, put me on the budget conference conference committee, and uh, I had I had I had a project that I wanted that I wanted to be included in the budget. It was the a new building at Ivy Tech over in Terre Haute. Okay. And they knew badly. I mean, Ivy Tech in Terre Haute was, uh, had just started maybe 10 years before, and it was in, it's, the facilities were not good. They were older facilities that they kind of started the thing in, but they definitely needed a new uh, classroom building and all that. And, and you know, uh, so uh, they put me on the budget conference committee, and that, but they didn't put that project in the budget. And I said uh, to the leadership, I said, you know, um, I'm willing to sign this report. The budget looks fine to me, except there's something I want in in it uh, and has to be put in it that's not in it. And uh, so they hemmed and hawed about it. Uh, So that's the one time I kind of got crossways with the leadership. Okay, yeah. Well, maybe the next time, maybe the next budget, but... Uh, we can't get it in this budget. And I said, well, uh, my problem is I won't sign the report without that in there. And they said, well, you have to. And I said, no, I don't. <laughs> I said, I, I, you know, I won't sign the report. And at that point in time, they, they couldn't, well, I guess technically they could remove me, but they didn't really want to cause a, a furor. Right. Because they knew that would cause a furor if they did. Uh, so they went back and forth, and they were kind of like some, not threatening me, but certainly uh, they were pl- they were playing hardball with me. And I said, I'm I'm just not going to sign it. And so we adjourned for the day, and uh, <laughs> we adjourned for the day. And uh, they said, Well, uh, where where can we reach you? And I said, Well, I'm going home. <laughs> and they said, Home to Solomon. Yeah, home to Solomon. And they said, Well. Uh, if we have to, we'll send the state police guy down with the report for you to sign. And I said, well, you can send the state police guy down if you want, but I'm not going to sign unless that unless my, my building is in the budget. Uh, it'll be a wasted trip. And so the state police guy didn't come. <laughs> then the next day they caved in and put my building in the budget. And so every time after that, when I went back and forth between Solomon and Terre Haute, I got to look at my brand new building that I put in the budget. <laughs> yeah, wow, okay. That's a pretty, uh, that's a gutsy move to play, I guess, there. Well, you know, that's all I could do. I didn't, yeah. have, I didn't have boats to do anything. Right, it's uh, true. They're the ones trusting me enough to put me on that committee. Yeah. So I figured this is, you know, this is... Uh, something my district needs and I'm going to hold out as long as I can to do it and it worked were you on a conference committee after that uh not for a little while okay <laughs> not a, yeah I was on them but not, not important not a big, not on the budget they never put me on the budget again <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah uh, but no, it was, no Garth, we came out of it okay Garth was fine yeah yeah interesting okay Wow, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess that's one of the kind of unique things about so many aspects of the legislative process is that even like conference committee, you can just take something and put it in. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, interesting. Okay. 
Yeah, and it, it varies from state to state. Over here, they don't even use conference committees anymore. They used to. Oh, okay. But they don't even use conference committees anymore because the process is so tightly controlled by the leadership, uh, it's not even necessary. Yeah, no, I understand. Um, let's see. What lessons did you learn from your experiences in the General Assembly? Well, I think the most important thing I learned was how to, how to deal, how to, to build a consensus because, I mean, that serves you well in, in anything you do in life. I think, whether it's political or not, trying to get a consensus behind a certain action or a position or whatever. And I, I kind of I was able to do that before, but it really, that's the, probably the biggest skill that I, that I honed during my time in the legislature was to be able to take, take something, a bill or a, an action or something, and build a consensus behind it to get it done, to get it put into play. Yeah. And, and that really, that, that skill alone served me extremely well as a lobbyist over here because that's really what, over here anyway, and I think most places, that's really what a, lo- a good lobbyist is able to do, is able to guide that consensus building process to the point where you, you're representing your client, you can get uh, your, your client's goal uh, approved. Sure. Yeah, it makes sense. Do you have any regrets from your time as a legislator? No. No, I, I have no regrets at all. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I probably, uh, well, I would probably would have stayed, tried to stay in the legislature uh, except I, we had a family illness. My wife uh, had breast, developed breast cancer. Right. And that's, and that's what happened. At the end of my, there at the end of my second term, I let, after Evan Bay was elected, I let him know that I was not going to run for re-election, that I was going to go back home to Sullivan and practice law, maybe run for judge. Anyway, I was going to go back to Sullivan so that I could be there full-time in Sullivan uh, with my wife and family. And so that's when that's when he, uh, his Bill Moreau and some of his folks said, "Well, listen, we're going to need we're going to need a Democrat who knows utility issues uh, to run this uh, utility commission. Would you be interested in that?" And uh, I said, "Yeah, I'd be interested in them." So that's how that all came about. So if if I hadn't had that illness situation, I might have run for re-election for a third term and and maybe stayed in the Senate longer. Yeah. Okay. What was your proudest moment as a legislator? Oh, wow. Well, I don't know. I think maybe being sworn in the first time was pretty cool. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, it, uh, it, well, like I said before, it was something I really didn't have, never really planned for, but uh, it, I thought it was, it was pretty cool. I, I remember two moments in that Capitol building really pretty distinctly. The first one was when I came back from Florida and was sworn in as a member of the, of the Indiana Bar in the Supreme Court chamber. And then the second one was swearing in as, as a, a state legislator for the first time. Yeah, okay. Sure. Um, oh, I should say, I guess I remember a third, third time in that building in the chapel when I got married. <laughs> yeah, okay. There you go. That's I true. better remember that. Yeah, that's an important one, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, what advice would you give to future legislators or even current legislators? 
Well, I, I guess the advice I would have for them, there's a bunch of stuff maybe, but the main advice I would have for them is work hard at it. Don't just, don't just slough off and, and, you know, let other people do. If you're, if you work hard at it, you'll be successful. If you don't work hard at it, you may get a few victories, but you're not going to have nearly the, the satisfying experience you have if you actually work hard at it, do the work, do what needs to be done to represent your constituents and get things accomplished. Right. Yeah. True. Uh, what, in your opinion, is the most important work of the Indiana General Assembly? Well, I mean, uh, the most important, I mean, on a, on a practical basis, most important work in the General Assembly is to, is to provide a budget for the state and live within that budget. Uh, but I think General Assembly and the leadership of the General Assembly can set a tone for for civility, which I think that's that's maybe not even possible anymore. But I think it's it was possible when I was there, and it was done when I was there. It was a political environment, it was a partisan environment, but it was a civil environment. Yeah. People got along. And, and that, I think that the General Assembly leadership can set a tone for the General Assembly, and General Assembly can set a tone for the public at large uh, along those lines. And that's another thing that, you know, I, I think is lacking currently, not only in state legislatures, but especially in Washington. Yeah, okay, sure. Um, what would you say the public does not know about the Indiana General Assembly and how it operates? I, I you know, it's hard for me to say now. Yeah. But I think back then, what the public didn't really have a clue was how well we all got along together, even though we were Democrats and Republicans, even though we were in Indianapolis and the rest of the state. Uh, you know, we were all different kind of people. But I, I think most most readers of the Indianapolis Star and listeners to the TV stations didn't understand uh, that it wasn't fight. It wasn't all about fighting. It was about working together collegially, and we did for the most part uh, do that. But I, that that kind of thing doesn't sell papers and doesn't get re- doesn't get viewers. <laughs> right? Yeah. Understand? Yeah. True. Yeah. Um. <laughs> uh. Let's see. Last few questions. Um, how okay. has the state of Indiana changed over the course of your lifetime? Oh wow, it's changed dramatically since I left Indiana uh, in uh, 1993. It's it's you know it was a Republican state politically, uh, but there was a, a pretty you know pretty good uh, number of Democrats, uh, and there was uh, there was a little bit more. Uh, collegiality between the two parties uh, and, the, and the public, uh, I think, kind of reflected that. And you know, I, I don't go, I don't, I'm not over there now. But it seems to me like Indiana and many other states around the country, that's that's kind of been lost. Yeah, and everybody seems to be at each other's throats. Indiana politically, I know from watching the numbers, watching the, the elections, Indiana politically is. Uh, thousand times more Republican now and more hard right Republican now than it was when I was there. 
Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so that's that's changed. That's changed in just thirty years, not uh, not my whole seventy some years, but in just the last thirty years, that's changed dramatically. But it's not the only place. It's, it's done that. That kind of change has taken place all over the country. Really. Right. Yeah. It seems like it. And it didn't start uh, six years ago. It started twenty years ago. Uh, actually, 22 plus 6, 28 years ago in 19. The first election I was over here in Illinois was 1994, and that election, uh, I think, was the start of all this drifting into this uh, uh, partisan divide that we're in. Yeah. How have the people of Indiana changed? Uh, you know, I mean, I think the people of Indiana are... are basically still uh, good, solid, down-home people. Uh, I would hate to see, I would hate to think that that has changed. Right. Uh, but you do have some elements there that are pretty radical. Yeah. When it comes, to, <laughs> comes to this partisan divide thing. Sure. Um, let's see, last question. What do you yeah. want the people of Indiana to know about their influence on the General Assembly? Well, I, I think it would be uh, it would be something they should know that they do that they can. I mean, I think a lot of people out in the general public think they have no influence on the general assembly, right? But they do. Uh, they got to vote. They got to be, be actively involved in current affairs and know what's going on. Uh, but I think they need to make their voices heard. That's one of the things I used to love about the Saturday morning town halls that we did. Was that was that was that was it. I mean, people were giving you their opinions uh, in real time on what you were dealing with in the General Assembly. And I think people, uh, more of that needs to happen, more input from the general public to their elected leaders would be a good thing, not a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. All right. Well, um, is there anything that I didn't ask about that you want to mention? Or No, I think that's, I think that that's uh, covered really well. I appreciate the questions. All right, perfect. Well, yeah, thanks Thanks for doing this. This is uh, really okay. fun. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, I look, I look forward to it. Thank you.